Welcome to Living with Purpose, the interview series where Francis Lynch speaks to various people about what purpose means to them and explores what gives them the energy to do what they do. Most people have got a story to tell, and these interviews show that extraordinary stories come from ordinary and not so ordinary people. So listen on as we explore purpose and meaning, and hopefully learn a little about some great people. Thanks for joining me as I have a chat with Dr. Nikki Howe. Now, I've known Nikki for about 10 years, but I learnt many things about her in this conversation that I hadn't heard before. And I came away even more thankful that I can count her as one of my colleagues and friends. Nikki has a headline on LinkedIn that goes, CEO, business builder, leadership and management coach, writer, philanthropist. In this conversation, you'll get some insight into the purpose that drives Nikki in her pursuit of these varied goals and how they come together in a life that is very full and authentic. Nikki is the CEO of Southcare, which is a community and aged care services provider in Perth, and from this position collaborates with many other leaders and organisations in her community. She has a doctorate in business administration and other qualifications in areas such as coaching and public administration. I'll include links to many of the things that Nikki mentions on the website at www.livingwithpurposeinterviews.com. So let's meet Nikki. Well, thanks for joining me, Nikki. Um, the, um, I've just given you a, a really good uh, glowing uh, introduction <laughs> in the podcast. But can you tell us in your own words about who you are? Yes. Always interesting, isn't it, that notion of, yeah, who are you? Um, who am I? Uh, well, I think partly I'm somebody who is really interested in, in humanity. So I think, you know, that really resonates with me around working with people. So I'm a person who's a people person. So when I think about who am I, I'm a, yeah, that's, that's who I am. Okay, and that, that's something that you feel you've sort of, that's followed you through the different things that you've done in your life? Yeah, when I think about everything that I've done, and it's been varied, you know, I've worked in chip shops, I've worked in prawn factories, I've managed organisations, I've done, a, you know, I was started life as a nurse, I've done a whole load of things. But when I think about, well, what is it at, at the core of that, it's always people. So I'm always engaged in something to do with people, whether it's caring for them, building their capacities, talking to them, whatever, it's always about people. So that, um, that question sometimes people say to me, well, what do you do? You know, what do you do? And I think to myself, well, what I do is I listen, I talk and I write. And I might do that in a variety of contexts, but that's pretty much what I do. So by that listening and by, like, there's a connection between the listening and the doing? I think so. I think, you know, um, we all want to be heard. And really in my, you know, particularly in my role or some of the other things that I do in my life, I think, well, if I'm not really listening to the person, do I really have clarity around what, what it is? You know, what are their concerns? We were talking before about human beings being concernful beings. So if you don't yeah. listen to them, 
do you really know what you know what their concerns are and then if you don't listen you may well act and act in the wrong way so you might be doing the wrong things so is that something that you've uh, sort of understood and known through your life or is that something that's changed over time Mm, I think I would say maybe intuitively I might have known it, but I think that my training, you know, my variety of training that I've had has really made me um, see that as the crucial linchpin to whatever you're doing. And, you know, in a previous role I did a lot of, uh, so I was organisational development, so I would go into different work areas and do reviews and the uh, the overwhelming thing with that was the number of people who said to me how much they appreciated the fact that I just sat there and listened to them. Yeah. You know, I didn't actually, you know, I wasn't actually doing anything. I was actually just interviewing them to find out, you know, how did they do their job, what was working, what wasn't working. But at the end, they would always say to me how much they appreciated the fact that I listened. And it was, you know, it's those points where you realise how powerful listening is if you can truly listen to somebody. Mm. And that's that can be very hard, of course, because we're always in our own stories. So tell me a little bit about the journey that brings you to where you are now. So, you know, a little bit of what might be interesting to oh, me. Yes. How did I end up where I am? Uh, look, I think I've always, as I said before, I think I've always really been interested in, in things that are about building the capacity of people. Of individuals, whether that be in a care environment or, you know, I've worked in employment, education, welfare, um, organisational development. So I think the path that has got me to where it's where I am now is because I've always followed that path of, well, what am I doing that's actually contributing to the human condition, to making things better? And I think underlying that is it always comes down to your values. You know, what is it, what is it that you value? Mm. And I think that, you know, over, overwhelmingly for me, my values centre around um, relationships and around community and around people. So I think I'm here because I can... I can connect and I can build individuals, I can build organisations and I can build communities. So I think all the different things that I've done have just led me to be here at this point in time to be able to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, you've obviously, as you were saying, you've moved, you mentioned that you've been involved in nursing and organisational development and then in a range of other things. So um, you've found over time through your life, different ways of being able to to practice that? Yeah, I think different ways to practice it. And also I think, you know, for me, the realisation that if you want to make change and if you want to change things, you actually have to be in positions of power and authority, even though we might not want to language that. So I think, you know, that I I realised that very early when I was nursing that if I wanted to change the situation in a hospital, I certainly wasn't going to be able to do it from a point of view of being an enrolled nurse. So I think, um, you know, what I've 
what I've observed and seen is that if I want to deal with society's injustice or the things that I don't like about, you know, a situation or an organisation or whatever, then I actually have to be in a position to do something about that. And sometimes that means I've got to be in a position of authority to do it. Mm -hmm. Not always because I think... Uh, you know, we can do a whole lot of things in terms of social change and social movement without actually holding a, a position of authority. But I think we, it's about leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. it's about us being in, in a position where we are prepared to lead, to step up and do something, um, to take, you know, the action that we want to take because we see the, See, we don't think it's right. And I think that comes down to our values because what I might think is right or wrong, you might have a different interpretation of that. Absolutely. So do you, you know, when you've spoken about values, is that something for you that has remained fairly constant or have you sort of, as your experiences have changed, have you changed your interpretation or even your understanding of what your values are? Look, you know, I think this is a really interesting question because... Um, One of my children recently said to me that they weren't going to work at this particular place because they didn't like their values. And, um, you know, they're in their 20s. And when he he said it, I thought to myself, I don't even think I thought about my values at that age. I just thought about, um, you know, feeding myself and then, of course, feeding my family. So I don't think that values were that I was that aware of my own values and I think I really only became aware of my own values probably in my mid-30s. Okay. Um, I don't think I had that clarity before that. I'd love to say I did, but I didn't. I was just too pragmatic and marching yeah. myself through life. But certainly now I'm much clearer and I'm much more committed and, a, and an advocate of the, of the importance of values, particularly in an organisational setting or in a community setting, that without that, um, you know, you get drift because you're not aligned. Yeah. yeah. So. And it, you know, if you're aligned, I get the sense from what you're saying is, is if you're aligned, then your feeling of, of energy and purpose really gets Absolutely. In. I worked in an organisation for a couple of years and I remember when I started, um, within the first couple of days, I knew I had made a mistake. And I did stay for 18 months because I'd made a commitment. Uh, But my soul wasn't inside me. There was no alignment you know, there was no alignment. It was never going to work for me. And that was a really good awakening for me about the choices that you make about where you work and why, where you wouldn't work. Yeah. I'm interested, um, you were saying in terms of your values and perhaps becoming clear, you know, in your mid-30s or whatever. I mean, I've got a, an interest in really in terms of what were the major influences for you in your life. And, mm. um, you know, it may have had influence on your values. It might have been something else. But... You know, it could be ideas that are your major influences or it could be people, but I'm interested in that. Yeah. Look, I think one of the major influences, when I get asked this question, I really can't, I'm not particularly clear about who are the people that might have influenced me. Um, I mean, certainly my parents have had an influence and teachers and work colleagues, but I think the biggest, some of the biggest things that have influenced me has been education. You know, I, I didn't actually go to university until I was in my early 30s. 
Um, so that had a big impact on me, going to university as a single mother um, and then continuing that journey. The ontological coaching, doing that diploma, has had a significant impact on me. So for me, I think... Um, Obviously, that's connected with people. I mean, I think Alan Siler has had a significant influence on my life and I think some of the other people I've worked with. But I think the biggest thing for me is being, you know, is education. I'm interested, um, you mentioned ontological coaching and Alan Siler. Um, many of the people listening may not really understand what ontological coaching is. And um, can you give us an idea of just some of the key ideas behind that? Yeah, yeah. I, look... The, the key ideas between that, that when we think about ontological coaching as opposed to another form of coaching is that it's premised not only in our language, so not only how we speak and listen to each other, but it's also around our moods and emotions, so very much our emotional awareness of ourselves and also our physiology, so our somatic body. So as an ontological coach or an ontological practitioner, I'm not working with the person just in the domain of language. I'm actually working with them in those three domains and then and through that we're able to um, Alan uses the word perturb, you know, as a coach, we're able to perturb somebody to help them shift maybe how they language the situation, how they saw what was possible or not possible for them in life. And we do that through supporting them to look at not only how they're, they're speaking it, but also how they might be holding it in their body and what emotional mood they might be trapped in. So, you know, say somebody who's in a mood of resentment or resignation, it's very difficult for them to move forward. So as an ontological coach, we're really exploring that with them. So we're really exploring those three areas of their life and how much they're intertwined in that person's, the term we use is their way of being. So those three domains create a particular way of being you know, you have a way of being, Francis, the same as I do. Yeah. And sometimes those ways of being serve us and other times they limit us and they close down possibilities for us. So as an ontological coach, what we're doing is we're trying to open up and perturb people to see different possibilities in their lives. It's very powerful. Yeah, and I know that um, the book that you've written really uses those principles in, in applying it to an organisational setting. Yes. And I'm assuming that you've done that within your work here at Southcare. Yeah, so, yeah, we um, have. Yeah, so, um, you know, just as a human being has a particular mood, an organisation can also have a mood. And so what I've been really working on here is to try and look at how you use that material in an organisational setting. So how do you make it really practical? And so um, my book is very practical around how do we use these particular approaches um, in, in a work environment to, to create a culture where we see possibilities, we see opportunities where everybody's a leader. So um, it's been a really interesting journey and I'd say it's been, you know, two steps forward, one step back. So it's an ongoing process. Mm. Um, just, uh, I'll put some notes on the website on the show notes for the the podcast. But what's the name of the book? Oh, so my book is called Better Relationships with Those You Lead, 
and I'm just uh, just finalising the second edition. So okay. I've yeah, so I've learnt from writing the first edition, and I've added some things and included you know a little bit more around uh, some of the things that I've learnt through that you know through the process of actually writing a book, yeah. which has been a big learning process. <laughs> I'm sure it has. Well, we look forward to that, and I'll put some links to that. Um, so what? I mean, what I'm interested in really is, is do, you, do you have a sense of, of purpose or direction in life? Um. Yeah, I do. I, I, I do have a sense of purpose and direction. And I think at a really fundamental level, I want a fair and just civil society. That's what I want. I see all this injustice around and, and I just think to myself, the world doesn't have to be that way. Whether it be, um, you know, I was saying to my husband the other night, I can't believe that half the world is dying from poverty and the other half of the world is dying for a, from obesity. <laughs> you know, like, it, you know, just let's look at that very starkly, you know, at what's currently going on at the moment in Syria. So, you know, they are big things and, and I might not necessarily engage in the global world but I certainly engage at a local level to say, what can I do to make this world more fair and just? And how can I do that with individuals? How can I do that in an organisation and what the organisation stands for? And how can I do it in a community? So I think at real grassroots level, that's what I want to do. I want to have an influence on our civil society. And you try and, from what I know of you, you try and do that proactively. Yeah. So have you got examples there? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, when I think about it proactively, I mean, one of the great projects that we've worked on over the last few years is how do we engage young people onto boards and committees in aged care and the community sector? So how do we take a group of, you know, people and, and say, yeah, look, why are we not looking at the capacities that these people have and engage them and bring them into these different areas within within society. Why do we exclude them? So it's been a really interesting project around how we exclude, how we might include. And I found myself in this really interesting space of, you know, advocating for young people, but because I also work in aged care, advocating for seniors. And so for me, it's like, again, that notion that we we exclude or we, you know, have more of something in one area and less of it in another. So I think, you know, there's a great cause for diversity across a range of things. So I'm very interested in how do we build the capacities of our organisations by engaging everybody and, I, and, and deliberately at that governance leadership level rather than at the, the lower levels. So let's bring them in and see what they can what they can teach us and what they can bring. And uh, one of the other things that I am very, very committed to in a number of forms is um, women and girls. So I'm a seroptimist and I am also with 100 women. So I'm very committed to, again, how do we create more of a just and fair society for women and girls? And I am... You know, I'm appalled, shocked and sometimes ashamed when I think about, 
you know, more women in Victoria die of domestic violence than than um, from um, car accidents. And I think in Australia, really. So I'm very committed to doing what I can in those areas of helping to build the capacity of women and girls to transform their lives. And I think, you know, that's again through education, through economic empowerment. So... So just uh, you mentioned a couple of things. Stroptimus may be uh, something that people know of, but 100 women. Yeah, look, 100 women, amazing. You know, I've been working with this young woman, Alicia Curtis, who read a book, Half the Sky, and decided she wanted to do something. So it's the, the principle behind it is you get together 100 women who give $100 a month, and at the end of the year we've got $120,000 which enables us to give three grants of $40,000. So we want impactful grants. But what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to create this idea that we are all philanthropists and through collective giving we can actually make a difference. And some women wouldn't be able to give $100 a month. So we create giving circles where, you know, a group of six women might decide that they're going to be a member and, and therefore they'll create a giving circle and they'll be philanthropists. So it is very much about, yeah, how do we claim philanthropy and say that we are actually philanthropists to actually make changes in the world? And it, it, it strikes me that that example of 100 women, but also the, the Young Leaders on Boards project, a lot of that is about working collectively mm. and collaboratively. Is that... Oh Something yes. That's really important to you. Yes, it is. It is. I I think that we can solve the world's problems if we chose to work collect, you know, collectively and collaboratively. And if we left all our little egos at the door and we worked together, we could solve the world's problems. And I think, you know, certainly working in the not-for-profit sector, I see the amazing things that go on when people choose to collaborate. I mean, we wouldn't have the engaging young leaders if we didn't have people who collaborated mm-hmm. and committed. Yeah. Uh, so it's and much bigger than just It's, it's absolutely. It's, it's not about Nikki and Southcare. It's about a collective group of uh, leaders in the sector saying, you know what, there's a problem and we can solve it, so let's work together to do it. So I do believe that, you know, working collaboratively um, is a great way of going. And, you know, it's not, it's not always, um, you know, sunshine. I mean, you've got to have d- difficult and sometimes interesting and challenging conversations with people to be able to do that well. Mm. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's easier to just do it alone. Uh, but I, I don't think you get the, you, you certainly don't get the diversity of, of what you want to be if you're just, you know, operating by yourself. And I suspect that those examples, and I'm sure there are others that you're involved in, that they people notice them and they, they perhaps take some ideas from them. Yeah, well, I, I hope that they I hope that they notice it in, in the sense of saying, actually, we could do that too to solve this problem or to, you know, to do whatever. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, one, one of the things I do want to uh, engage more in is how this model can be used to solve other problems. You know, how, how you can say, well, what are the steps that we took and how can we then use that for something else? 
And it's, you know, it's easy to do. Easy to say. It's easy to say, <laughs> I just need a day to write it. <laughs> so do you think that your purpose has actually changed over the years? That, that your sense of maybe, even if you were to look back five or ten years, do you think what you see in yourself or, you know, is where you're going, do you think that that has is something that changes over time? Look, I think for me, it might not necessarily be great change. Maybe it's more clarity. Yeah. I've got a bit more clarity now about my purpose than I did 10 years ago. I'm also in a different situation in terms of, um, you know, my, my family life. You yeah. know, my children are grown up. So I think that those sorts of things possibly change you. But I think for me, it's probably that I've got more clarity around what is it that I want to leave the world with? You know, I don't know whether that's also because, you know, I'm in my 50s now and you go, well, you know, what, what yeah. contribution are you really making? Yeah. And do you feel that, you know, given, as you say, you know, you're in that, that 50s bracket, but can you see that what you're interested in or what your purpose or your goals are going to be are going to just continue on the same path or do you feel that there's going to be some shift Oh, no, I think that they'll continue on the same path, but maybe not in the same context. So I think, you know, I think I have these dreamy ideas that, you know, I would like to go and actually, you know, do volunteering somewhere else, you know, just be able to step out and actually really immerse myself in some volunteering role that's really going to make a difference. And I want to engage more in philanthropy and help people see that as a way forward um, and yeah I just want to keep building sustainable communities but where those communities are I don't know that I know yet yeah. so I think the context might be different but I think I'll still be doing the same thing because that's what I love doing and that's where I get energy. Which leads me on to I was going to ask about that because mm. really you know what is it that that you notice actually gives you energy and, and sustains you in the work yeah. that you do. What I notice gives me energy is people. People give me energy. So, um, you know, when you work with people, you know, I was working with some people on the weekend, actually it was with 100 women, and, you know, they were so vibrant and engaging and passionate about the, you know, the grants that we were reading and what, what decisions we were going to make. Like I was really energised by that. I'm energised at work when, you know, we've got at the moment we're going through a bit of change and we've got a new manager and she's got all these ideas and and, and that really, so people energise me. And I think also injustice gives me energy. So when I see that, when I see these injustices in the world, I say, well, you know, what am I doing about that? I need to step up and I need to use my resources to actually do something about that. And the, the other one, this is a bit of a funny one, but incompetence gives me energy because when I see incompetence, I want to change it. In yourself? Or in it others? can be in myself, in others, in systems. Yeah. You know, it can be anywhere. Um, I want to change that. So, yeah, if I see incompetence in myself, I think, right, I, I, I need to step up here, I need to learn, I need to teach myself more, I need to practice more. So I think that, you know, even though that's a 
possibly a strange thing to say, it, that gives me energy. It says I want to improve, I want to get better, I want to make that better. Yeah. Is it something that, um, again, I'm interested really in terms of, you know, has there been any change in that for you over time? Do you, was that something you always knew about yourself in terms of, you know, that connecting and working with people was something that really was driving you, was giving you the, the energy to do what you're doing or is... Again, is that something that changed? No, I don't think I... I mean, I've, I've, I've never been frightened of people. Yeah. I've always... I remember as a young girl working in a fish and chip shop and I used to do the Sunday night shift and that's when they had the taverns, right. you know, the tavern. And they always used to come in on a Sunday night because they were always, you know, pretty three parts to the wind. And I used to... I wasn't ever frightened of that. You know, I used to get in and engage and and joke around and and just do what I could to manage the situation. Um, So I don't know that... I mean, I certainly didn't have the clarity then about what I was doing. I was just wanting the paycheck, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I think maybe for me it's just more that I've got clarity and I'm also in a privileged position position to be able to make decisions about where I what I will and won't do you know whereas a, as a younger woman um yeah. it was about saying well you know I remember someone saying to me oh geez Nikki you're really ambitious and I said yeah I'm ambitious to get that next level I said because I'm a single mum with two boys and I want to feed them yeah. like you know I can be very pragmatic as well yeah I'm interested to know whether there's any um particular practices that you have in your life or, or routines or, um, yeah, just the way you, you set up your day that mm, actually makes mm, a difference mm. and really keeps you on track? Yes, look, I was talking to a young girl the other day about values and I said to her, she said, oh, I, didn't, I don't really understand what they are. And I said, well, go to what you do all the time, I said, because that will give you a sense of your values. Mm, yeah. And I said to her, she said, well, what are yours? And I said, well, one of my values is well-being. I said, and every morning I get up, I do a bit of yoga, I go for a walk with my dog, and then I come back and I get on my little, you know, exercise machine. So very rarely will a day go by that I have not um, engaged in some sort of physical activity for my own well-being. Um, I also, you know, I love yoga. I love trying to practice mindfulness. I'm not a great meditator, but I like to walk in the mornings by myself and talk to myself. So I do believe in reflective practice. So I do spend a fair bit of time trying to reflect. So I think for me, um, in order to have the energy to do the things that you want to do, I think you do have to look after yourself. You know, you have to look after your well-being. Um, and I think the other thing for me is that constant notion of being a learner. So, you know, when, you, when you're a learner, you don't have to hold that you know everything. So I think that holds me in pretty good stead. And I try and read or look at something every day to just, you know, just to keep my mind active and and just look at things from a different perspective. So I, you know, I try and engage and practice in in being a learner. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, you you don't want to be taking yourself too seriously, really. Yeah. You know, so 
people who know me, they know I like a glass of Shiraz, you know. So it's, you know, know you know that. And life is a balance. And it's it's easy to go, oh, I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to eat chocolate cake. And, and But I think the, the challenge for us is to, you know, have a glass of wine and have a little bit of cake and try and keep everything in balance. Yeah. Keep your friends in balance. Absolutely keep your family, you know, keep managing those relationships because really they'll, they are the thing that will sustain you and look after you in the long run. So I know that, you know, obviously you were saying earlier that a lot of your energy comes from being in contact with people and working with others and, and whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that there are times when people might be in conversation with you where they're trying to work through some stuff for themselves, trying to understand what their purpose is or where, you know, where they can put themselves to best use or, you know, can, can get them to sort of work towards their potential. What, what sorts of conversations do you have with people or if someone's actually asking for you for advice what what do you Mm. sort of go to oh look I I use a coaching approach I have to say I have to declare that 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 is my natural approach um you know you you get asked if you'll mentor somebody or you'll coach somebody and and even in a mentoring situation I find that I tend to operate as a coach so I tend to you know, ask those questions and listen. And and if I am going to give advice, I say, I say, look, you know, would you like me to give you some advice? And I'm, I'm happy to do that. But I, I think I tend to engage with people using a coaching approach, which is listen and ask questions. Because, mm. you know, I don't really know the answers anyway. No. Well. <laughs> they do. They know them. They know them. The, the answers are inside them. It's just giving them that space uh, for them to hear themselves. Yeah. And you were said, saying, um, uh, I think it'd been before we started recording, but, um, uh, you know, talking about that, you know, the sense of people being given the space to be heard and to speak and to be given the respect of listening uh, in itself is very powerful. Oh, it is. It's, a, it's an amazing gift. People don't get listened to. We don't, you know, uh, we're always trying to push our agenda. You know, we're putting forward what we want to say. Do we really stop and go, oh, hang on a sec, what is this person really saying to me? I mean, how many times, you know, we're in front of a computer, we're on the phone and somebody walks in. Are we really listening to them? So I do think that's one of those great free gifts that we don't necessarily give enough of. We don't give it out enough. Now, how do you balance that, you know, being in the chief executive role here at Southcare when, you know, the, the value of listening but then also having to to use authority and to be accountable? Mm, mm. Look, I think it's really important to create that create that space in terms of, like, I, I will always start off my engagement with somebody around expectations. So whenever I start with a new staff member, I will always say, what is it that you expect of me? And I get them, always get them to tell me first. Their list is usually quite light on. And then I say, well, these are my expectations. And I, I, so I start with setting that up right up front. And that is that, um, you know, be honest with me. We're both learners. 
Um, if you've got a problem, come and talk to me about it. Um, I don't want any surprises. So I think you're really setting that up right at the beginning. You're setting that up as a foundation. Yeah. And then you're really just creating a whole load of structures and processes within your organisation to enable that to happen. So, you know, I meet with my people every fortnight individually. Yeah. So I am going to listen to them. And then if they're not performing, then, you know, I have a conversation with why. What's why, what, what's going on? Why are you not meeting the commitments? Is there a problem? Do you need training? Blah, blah, blah. And, of course, you know, you're right. As, as a CEO, at times you have to take those hard decisions and let people go. But you always want to do that, holding them as a legitimate human being and being respectful to them and going to the data and the facts, not your, you know, stories, which, of course, we all get caught in. Yes. Easy to. <laughs> we love a story. <laughs> if there isn't one, we'll create it. <laughs> Talking about stories, do you, do you have um, uh, sort of any suggestions to people who are really interested in, in thinking about direction and purpose, you know, ideas around books or blogs or podcasts mm, or people mm. that they could go and find? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I do do a lot of reading and, I, and I, I look at my bookshelf and it is quite eclectic. So, you know, some of the things I like are things that are really practical. So I like to read some very practical books. Uh, one I've just recently read is um, a book called Talk Like Ted, you know, which helps you with your presentations. Oh, like the TED Talk. Like the TED yeah, Talk. Yeah, yeah. So he teaches you how to talk, you know. Is there actually a TED? There, well, no, his name's not Ted, but there it is there. But I think that's a fantastic book. Um, so I'll put that in the show notes. So it's yeah, Talk Like Ted talk by Carmine Gallo. Yeah. That's great. And then this other one that I, I like is... Um, uh, the Spirit uh, of Leadership. By Harrison Owen. Yeah, I think his stuff's fantastic. And then, you know, you can have these really simple books that you just open up and go, oh, okay, so what's the thought, thought for the day? Yeah. Um, so I do read a lot. Uh, I loved this one, this one uh, by Geraldine Doog, The Climb, and that was just a load of conversations with different Australian women in power. Found it really fascinating so is book. Is yeah, it... I think I just got it last year. Yeah. Um, so I do read. I, look, I think you can't you can't go past the meeting somebody for lunch. I think it's a great. You got to go and you know you've got to go and talk to people. Go and have yeah. a coffee with them. Go and talk to them, and uh, you know you'll always learn something from engaging with somebody on a one to one. Um, I do like podcasts. I think that they're a great way of learning. And I was just listening to one the other day, which was uh, Valerie Taylor, and she was talking about her journey with sharks. And I just found that fascinating. I was actually at the dentist and I had the podcast in while he was oh, okay. doing what he was doing because I thought, I don't want to hear that drill. I'd rather hear a podcast. <laughs> That's a good idea. Was that, was that a... Is that a rigid fight? It, it was, it was, but it was uh, the lady that was doing... Oh, while was it, while sitting in his place. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was. Um, look, I, I really like Parker J. Palmer. I think he writes some really interesting books. And, of course, I love the work of Alan Siler. I yeah. think his books on ontology and his articles are really fascinating. 
So we skipped over Parker J. Palmer. What, what's the sort of things that Oh, look, Parker J. Palmer's got this really uh, neat little book called um, Let Your Life Speak, which is about your vocation. And he's really talking about, uh, you know, follow your vocation. So follow what it is that you love doing. So he's really saying, let your life speak. Look at what you do in your life and that tells you what, what your vocation is and what you should be doing. Now, I know that you work, um, you know, in your outside of Southcare time, you do some coaching and you also run retreats yes. or seminars. So yeah. um, some of those are based on packaging. Yes, yes. So I've, I've been working with a lady by the name of Anne Courtney now since about 2008, where we decided we'd run these wellbeing retreats for women. We had no idea what we were going to do, but we just yeah. started doing it. We winged it. We winged it. And we used the work of uh, Alan Siler, so we based them in ontology and also um, some of the work of Parker J. Palmer. And then uh, we then started another collaboration with a lady by the name of Catherine Chules, who does mindfulness. And, and uh, so, so we've now got this really nice mix of retreats and, yeah, well-being days and um, afternoons where part of it, I think, is about inviting people to get some space to hear themselves speak which is really interesting. That's been a really interesting journey for us. When we first started, we gave them so much information. It was like information overload. Yeah. And now it's less is more. And um, so your roles as, as retreat leaders are, are very much scaled back. Scaled back, being very deliberate about what we put in and what we don't put in. Yeah. Uh, really creating a space. So we're very deliberate about how we set up our retreats to create spaces where um, people can actually hear their own souls. I know that sounds, you know, not necessarily language we use in everyday bu the business world, but that's what we're doing. So we're trying to create safe spaces for people and give them resources, give them practical resources so when they come away they can you know, actually make some changes in their lives so that they, you know, they're, they're more resourceful. So those retreats I know are held across the year um, in the sort of hinterlands of Perth. Yes. Um, how would people find out about that? So, that, look, if they went onto my website, so www.nickihow.com, uh, there's, a, there's a page that talks about the retreats that we run. Yeah. Yeah. And also about, you know, my individual coaching that I do outside of self-care. Yeah, okay. So um, I sort of touched on this, but I'm really just interested, is there anything else that you'd like to sort of talk about? I mean, I've asked a whole series of questions, but, you know, is there something that you're hoping you're going to get a chance to sort of reflect on or mention? Uh, no, not really. I mean, one of the things you, when you were talking to me about how do you keep yourself motivated? What do you do? And we, we did talk about TED Talks. I do think that the whole use of YouTubes and social media, I've, I've really experienced in the last few years is extremely powerful in terms of creating communities. You can create amazing online communities yeah. with people that you don't really know. Yeah. Um, you can get information and share information and you might not be an expert in something, but you can contribute. So I think that 
the, the now the access to using social media really opens up the world for us to be much bigger. It's a real global world. Yeah. Um, I've got a young guy doing a piece of work for me at the moment through a, um, a website called Upwork. So I think that we can do work differently and we can engage people differently and we can engage people with their, using their strengths and skills and therefore enabling us to do that the same for us and going, well, I'm actually not very good at that, so I'm going to outsource that. So I think, um, yeah, I think they're really, that's going to be really interesting times for us around what's the world going to look like in 10 years' time? What is the world of work going to look like? Um, I think one of the things is that what we will always want is we will always want relationship. You know, we'll always want to be in relationship with each other and we'll always want to be in communities, whether uh, whatever that's going to look like. So um, I'm really interested in that. And I think that, you know, it, it ties in with what you were saying earlier about collaboration and community, is that, you know, the relationship building and the collaborative approach, you know, is very often where, you know, our history, our, our, our experience as a, as a people is face-to-face, -face. but, you know, we're now having to get our heads around how do we do this virtually, how do we do this mm. in, in a space where, you know, the person who you're contracting throughout work could be, on another continent. Yes, yes, at the moment he is. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, how do, how do we create those trust relationships mm. across time and across space? Yes, well, trust is a really interesting thing, isn't it? And uh, I'm, I'm just about to give a talk on trust uh, next week. And so I've been really immersed in this whole notion of, well, what is trust and how do we build it? And how do we know what breaks it so that we don't break it? And how it really is that whole emotional lubricant of an organisation but also of a community. So when we think about, you know, building these collaborative communities, how do we build trust um, as the foundation for that so that when things don't work out, it doesn't fall apart? So... Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Like good talk. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, Nikki, I think um, it's been in a. I've certainly really enjoyed the time that we've spent today together. Um, I can get the sense of a really strong um, purpose from what you were talking about, and um, also I think a really uh, congruence between what you're doing in the various parts of your life and the way that that. Um, even though you're saying you may not have understood what your values were, but, you know, looking back that you've had that sense of, of value and purpose and, and constancy almost through a long part of your working life, maybe all of it. Um, so it's been a real pleasure and an honour today oh, to just you. hear some of that and to be able to be able to share that with people through this podcast. Mm. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me into the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. Thanks for listening to the Living With Purpose interview series. There are show notes for each episode that you can get on the www.livingwithpurposeinterviews.com website. You can also connect with Francis on Twitter at underscore Francis Lynch, on LinkedIn, or on email at francislynch.me at gmail.com. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode as a podcast, then subscribe on your player and tell your friends. Thanks and join us again soon.